Havewoods is the name in beautiful wood flooring design. We've been inspiring architects and interior designers for well over 40 years. We have four UK showrooms, including our head office in Lancashire and the new Manchester studio where we are today, plus locations throughout the world, offering global support to our clients wherever they may be. Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the interior design community for the interior design community. My name is Jeff Hayward and with my co-presenter Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuto Interiors and past President of the British Institute of Interior Design, we examine some of the business challenges faced by professional interior designers and we give you the inside track on how to deal with them. We're joined every month by a special guest who can share their insights and expertise with you. Today, we're looking at the challenges of dealing with private clients. It can be hugely satisfying and fun to work on private residential projects. Interior designers can have a massively positive impact on the lives of their clients and their families, but sometimes clients can find the design process daunting. Designers all dream of working for delighted, grateful, non-quibbling, fee-paying private clients. But in reality, how easy is this to achieve? And what can designers do to avoid some of the possible pitfalls? Welcome to the interior design business. We're podcasting today from the Havewoods Manchester showroom in vibrant Deansgate, the design quarter of the city. It's a spectacular space showcasing the wonders of wood flooring design. Here you can see the brand's exclusive surface collections in an inspirational and relaxed setting. Please pay them a visit. Yes, it really is a fantastic space and we're delighted to have as our guest today one of the Northern Creative Powerhouse's top designers, Fiona Watkins, founder and creative director of Fiona Watkins Design. Now Fiona, before we start, can you tell us a bit about your background as a designer? Yes, well I started off in the hospitality and tourism industry. Um, I decided that I liked how the hotels looked rather than actually working in them. So that was my love of design started there really, I suppose. And you sound as though you're not from around here originally. No, I'm actually from New Zealand. Which is great because I'm from Australia. So this is the Antipodean podcast. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> and how would you describe the landscape for designers in the Northwest? I think it's great. Um, there's a lot of designers uh, practicing in this region, but equally we've got fantastic customer base, a huge amount of customers. Cheshire's a, a really good area and so are the surrounding counties. Everyone seems to be very busy. A lot of my design friends are all hectic with work. And what percentage of, of your work is private residential? Pretty much 100%. Um, I mainly work on domestic interiors and uh, I did start off doing some commercial design, um, a few small hotels and things like that, but I do prefer the residential side more. So you are absolutely the perfect designer to be having this discussion with today. Susie, how does a client typically budget for interior design services? Uh, often not terribly realistically. Uh, I think certainly my experience, my, so just to tell you a little bit, my practice is a bit more of a mixed practice compared to Fiona's. So I do a mashup of commercial projects and um, private residential, but we find that often clients don't have a realistic idea of how much things cost. They might have budgeted, you know, let's pluck a figure out of thin air and say £200,000. To them it sounds like a king's ransom, it sounds like that should buy them anything they want. And it's only when they start to drill down into what they're actually asking for that they realise that perhaps it's inadequate. And how do they come up with that figure in the first place? 
it's usually what they can afford. It's usually, you know, they've, they've allocated an amount of money and then they've sort of said, oh, you know, surely that must be enough to allow us to do what we want to do with our home. Same experience for you? Fiona? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It's up to us to sort of try and help them allocate their funds. I mean, for fixed items, you know, things that remain in the house. Um, a lot of the time, I can often shoot myself in the foot by saying things like, well, you know, you need to sort of put things that are going into the house, all the fixed things like flooring, kitchens, bathrooms, things that you can't change so easily, whereas the furnishings maybe you can do it's sort of going along afterwards if, you, you know, if the budget doesn't stretch to that. Um, I do, if they have underestimated, I often say to them that they're better off doing one room at a time but doing it properly rather than trying to do a little bit in each room because you never get that sort of finished look. Um, although we always say that if people are trying to do things, particularly if it's anything that involves moving services around, that we try and get them to at least do a bit of a, um, I suppose you'd call it a, a feasibility study. So we get them to pull together a, a whole house plan so that we know where the order service is going to go, for example, so that you don't then get to that in phase three and realise that it's in the wrong place. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Try and get as much of the building work done. The infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah. Do they sometimes give you that figure as a negotiating tactic? That is, that's a real risk. I mean, often, often they're very reluctant to give you a figure at all. I don't know whether you find this to be the case. Yeah. I think they worry that if they give you a figure, you'll spend up to it. But what I always say to clients is that unless you give us some sort of budget figure, I don't know whether I'm shopping in Harrods or at John Lewis or at Ikea. Do private clients actually recognise the value of design or are they thinking of that spend totally all on product? Well, it's up to us to educate them that <laughs> on the value of design. Uh, Susie and I were having a chat about this and uh, sometimes you get clients that will say, well, actually, you know, the kitchen designer and the bathroom designer will just give me that design for free, so why should I pay for your designs? But it's, it's very different because what we do is we we bring everyone together, we coordinate the entire space, not just one area. Well, and my counter to that is always, yes, the kitchen designer will, are in the, they're in the job of actually selling you kitchen units. So yeah. they'll design a kitchen with as many kitchen units as they can possibly that's fit right. in because what they're wanting to do is sell you kitchen. Yeah, that's um, right. Whereas actually you may not need that many kitchen units. Maybe they haven't factored in the, the space that's required for the family dining area or you know a, a seating area or something else. So I think we have a more holistic approach. Yeah, definitely. But that's, that's just the sort of planning aspect of it we always sort of say to clients that they can expect not just on interior design but on professional fees generally they should be looking to allocate somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of their total budget to fees. Do you think that the clients believe you get huge discounts on the products therefore the designs should be free? It varies from job to job really yeah I mean everyone knows you get a trade discount and then it's up to the the each project works differently so we go into the fee the fee dilemma again don't we about yeah. you know you either base it on a fee and then if if any so your fixtures fittings and equipment that you then pass on your discount to the client or it's done on a percentage basis but if it's genuine interior design so it's the hard landscaping of the building where you're actually doing the lighting design and the small power and the, the reflected ceiling plans and things you're not selling them product at that point so you know you do have to be paid to do that design work in many ways, the FF&E comes as a later stage. You've, you've always got to get that, you know, the actual layout and everything else nailed first before you can move on to selling them sofas. It's educating them that design is a service. It is, yeah. I mean, just as a little example, I've got a project that I'm working on at the moment where we're specifying over 60 radiators and the time that I've spent on radiators is beyond, <laughs> literally <laughs> beyond. The client does understand because she's tried to do it herself thankfully so it understands you know 
how long it takes. But yeah, it's all about educating people, yeah. I think. And we also set out our um, fee proposals when we do fee proposals for clients with a very comprehensive list of the deliverables. So we'll actually say joinery. We have assumed five major items of joinery and we'll list the rooms where those are going to go. So and we, when we're costing those up, we actually allocate how many hours we know it's going to take us to do each of those pieces of work. So the clients are kind of aware that they're buying. I keep coming back to the same thing. When clients, any project, commercial or residential, people have an amount of money and a product they're trying to buy. And it's not like going into a shop and buying an off-the-shelf jacket. Or a, or a teacup or something you know they don't know they have an amount of money and something that they're trying to get for that they don't actually know when they start what it is they're going to end up so until you actually set out for them step by step by step by step by step the process they have to go to in order to identify the product that they're buying that's that to me is that so again it's all about communication and yeah. we set that out very clearly right from the off yeah. now you do have clients that try and go i don't need all that stuff that's ridiculous why do i need reflected ceiling plans and then you have to try and explain why they do need reflected ceiling plans and quite often you give them that fee proposal they say they don't need it then they do need it and you have to go back to the fee proposal and say well we did actually end up doing that therefore i'm going to have to charge you for it that's right yeah which again point of case good fee proposal mm. you know that's what you need to have. Okay, so you can educate a client about the value of design. What about educating them on how long a project takes to complete? Well, again, this can be a very muddy area. Uh, generally speaking, I would say every project I've ever worked on overruns without doubt. I always like to explain at the off to the client that they have to be flexible. Uh, some of them will be in rented accommodation. Um, how long have you got this place for, etc., etc. But just do you understand, has the builder explained to you, do you have a hopefully a schedule that they're working to uh, so they can see an end date? But then I always suggest that they add at least a month or two for delays. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. It's it's You need to kind of work backwards sometimes as part of your brief-taking exercise. You know, if you know that someone is has absolutely got to be in their house because they're having a 25th wedding anniversary party mm -hmm. on the 15th of July next year or something, um, then, you know, you might have to say to them, well, realistically, within that time scale, we won't be able to do the whole house. Perhaps we focus our attention on the principal reception rooms and we'll come back and do the upstairs areas as a second phase as an example so that's all part of this sort of process that you go through of managing clients expectations there's that old saying about you can have it you can have it fast you can have it good you can have it cheap pick two like it yeah Very that's good, good. <laughs> any other strategies that you'd recommend I think the other point you raised about the, um, the contractor coming up with a program um, and something that you can then kind of hold him to account on we touched on this in a previous podcast but if the if the contractor has actually produced a program so that it's also very helpful for the designer because you you can clearly see then when you need to have those tiles on site or when the carpet needs to be fitted or whatever it else is that you, you need to dovetail in with him on um, and then you can say to the client you know and therefore if you want to have all the furniture and everything else done at the time that he's finishing we therefore need to work backwards because furniture might have an eight to twelve week lead time curtains will have a similar lead time so it gives you a clear plan then for when decisions need to be made by the client and you have to make them understand that if they don't make those decisions at the appropriate moment the project will be delayed because it's not always under your control no absolutely not what about the things that are under your control when you're getting product in or getting getting product that's specially made for a particular project how can you make sure that gets delivered on time just make sure you don't give a, a lead time that you can't meet and it's simple as that you know I mean with the best will in the world things go wrong you know 
factories have disasters, mm. you know, things get lost at sea. Or the lorry reverses backwards over the consignment. I have had that. <laughs> that, was, nice. that was interesting. Um, yeah, so, you know, there, is, there are things that go wrong always and clients have to be a little bit understanding when it's genuinely beyond your control. And I think also you, you need to have some caveats perhaps in your fee proposal that say, you know, you're not responsible for other things, other people's Things, things out of your control. Mm, yeah. Exactly. Okay, when you are specifying things for mm-hmm. clients, then how can you enable them to understand that uh, what you're buying and what, what's involved in what you're buying and, and help them make informed decisions? Well, you have to show them. In a lot of cases, it's, you know, you can't show them small pieces of uh, furniture and et cetera, et cetera. You actually have to show them product as, as best you can. Um, and I'll take them to various showrooms, Bring them to places like this, you know, and uh, so that they can see things in large format, large scale. It's not always possible, though, when someone has an enormous range. You know, if you think about sanitary, where some mm. you have a supplier that might produce three hundred different basins, and in their showroom, even though it's a magnificent showroom, they'll only have fifteen on display. So there comes a point where it has to be a leap of faith. And we spend a lot of time in the office. The um, team will spend a lot of time ringing around, trying to, particularly if it's a client that you're concerned about, might be a bit nervous and really wants to actually make sure that they've seen the product. So you can spend a lot of time on the phone, phoning all over the place, trying to find out, you know, maybe it's in a hotel, maybe it's in another private client, you know, is there somewhere where you can go and see this thing installed? And the same applies to furniture because most furniture manufacturers simply cannot. I mean, they, you know, you'd have furniture showrooms, acres, things like that, huge. They can't display everything that they make, so it, it can be a it has to be a leap of faith in some. Well, there is a little bit of a trust element as well, isn't there? And that's hopefully where you reassure the client and they have faith in you that you've chosen the right product for them to a certain extent. I mean, I've also taken clients, and this is where keeping a good relationship with your client is really important so because I've taken new clients to old clients' houses so they could see a piece of furniture that we've had made or whether it's a sofa or something like that, just so they can try it and see it because our furniture manufacturer is in the middle of the country, so sometimes it's not easy for people to get there. Uh, So again, I just think it's really important that you keep good relationships and then they'll help you out in the future. And you're right, it is a, it is about trust. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about was this, this idea of value engineering. I don't know whether that's a term that you use. So one thing that happens a lot is you might specify a, a light fitting, you know, a recessed light fitting, an LED fitting to go in the ceiling. And the client, usually the client's husband, um, <laughs> turns around and says, but I can get those online for five pounds each. And you specified something that's 28 quid a pop. And you then have to go back and explain that, yes, they can have the one that's five pounds each, but the color is going to be wrong on all of them. And it doesn't have an anti-glare baffle and it's big and clunky and, you know, the finish isn't good and they're going to have problems with it further down the line. And sometimes you win those battles and sometimes you don't. And sometimes it's a matter of, of actually getting a sample of what they've got and a sample of what you're proposing and getting them to look at it side by side. And sometimes, you know, if they really don't want to spend £28 on a light fitting, then fair enough, let them go with the £5 one. Sad, though. (laughs) Very, very sad. Very sad indeed. And what about the client who spends a lot of time shopping themselves online and and thinking they can get products that are better than the ones that you might be recommending? Well, just exactly that. You have to show them the difference. And using the lighting uh, example that Susie's just said is great because you can see a huge difference in something that you can buy for a fiver from wherever as opposed to buying something from a lighting specialist or a lighting company 
as Susie says, it's all to do with maybe the recess depth. Or some of them come with a fire hood if that's needed for certain areas. So there's there's all these things that you think, oh, actually, I've saved I've saved twenty pounds on this fitting. Now I have to go and buy a load of fire hoods. So you know, it, it's making sure that they're what they're buying is actually like for like. Mm, definitely. And also if they do need to, to, and everyone needs to cut costs from time to time, but just managing their expectations. Because we find that whatever number you tell clients or whatever you show them the first time, it's what, they, what gets locked in their brains. So if you then downgrade it because you need to, because you've had to meet their budgetary constraints, unless you explain very carefully to them that this is not the same product, this is not the pure wool fabric. This is a, a synthetic fabric. It won't hang the same way. It, it may it may fade. Uh, you know there might be all sorts of reasons that you've specified something in the first instance. Everybody does need to to make um, adjustments to their budgets, and I completely understand that. But you just need to make sure the client is very clear because unfortunately, what will happen is they'll only remember the first one that you showed them, and when it goes up, they'll be really disappointed with it. And also, it's making sure that where they do save money are things which aren't as important. You know, let's just go back to lighting because for me, lighting is really, really important. And say you've specified a beautiful chandelier and it's £3,000 and then they want one which is £1,000. So you've got to make sure that they understand that it's not going to have that impact of the more expensive one. And it's where they spend their money wisely, right? Let's try and save it somewhere else, you know, on whether it's a cheaper curtain fabric or, or cheaper fabric for the furniture or less cushions or, or, or what have you. Yeah, or, or as you said earlier, things that can be added later. That's if right. If they haven't got the money to do the, the cushion package now, let's let's leave it for do it in a year's time. Or let's not worry about replacing the dining room table yet. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of ways around it. And I think you're right. It's, it's making, it's, it's getting to, and each client will have different things that they find critical. Exactly. Clients do find projects emotional. They find them stressful. How do you allay those fears? By being very patient and very understanding. You have to have the patience of a saint. And also, I've done a lot of my own projects, so I can have empathy with them. I know what they're going through. I know how difficult it is. I know how they're sick of having uh, workmen in their home, etc., etc. You just have to explain to them that the end goal is going to be amazing and you know it's worth putting up with the the hassle for the time being. You have to just keep showing them what it's going to be like at the end. <laughs> how do you keep calm, Susie? How do I personally keep calm or how do I keep my clients calm? I think the other thing is recognising that often clients are fearful and that they're terrified often of making a mistake. You know, for them, this is so important. It's their home. It's so invested with emotion for them and they're going to show it off to their friends and they want to be proud of it and they want their children to be happy there and they want their pets to be comfortable and their mothers to be comfortable and their you know everybody needs to, to just come in and, and love it and, and admire what they've done because your home is such a statement about you too so this is this is massive for them and often they're so 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 frightened of getting something wrong that that's why they make you look at 25 different options and then probably go full circle and come back to the first thing you suggested but you have to have the patience to allow them to go through that process and it can be incredibly trying and time consuming and ultimately I'm not sure you can ever bill for the amount of time that it takes. Everything has to be documented basically so they know exactly what they're getting that is probably the most important thing so that when they come back and they say I thought that was going to look like that. And you can go, well, no, this is the drawing and this is what it looks like. So you have to make sure that you uh, keep everything, have copies of everything. And you should have that in your project pack anyway. So, and that's what the client has. And just a, a word to the wise too, because they are consumer clients. Even if you've drawn something, 
they can turn around later on and say, but I didn't understand the drawing. And quite often they're not willing to tell you that they haven't understood the drawing because they don't want to come across as being stupid. And lots of people don't find it easy to, to read 2D representations of things that are actually 3D rooms. Um, and that's where th some of the 3D technology, you know, we do a lot of work in SketchUp now yep. so that clients can see, or, you know, sometimes we do CGI's, but just if you want to do something quickly, we use SketchUp so that you can actually show people what the rooms look like. You know, they get much more of a feel for it. And so that's a big help. Empathy and understanding, really important then. Definitely. And clarity, clarity, clarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about the client who tries to manage their own project? <laughs> Yeah, experience again here. Um, <laughs> again, you just have to be very patient and try and, and explain that while, you know, they may want to do X, Y, do it, do it X, Y, Z way, that uh, actually it needs to be done another way, which is better and will ultimately save them time and money. I don't kind of want to generalise here, but it's mainly retired, older retired people that I find, and especially people that have been engineers or something like that in their past, they come at you with all these really detailed drawings about how they want everything to be, which is great and can be actually super helpful, but then you, they sort of tend to micromanage the whole thing and try and and, and pull in sort of certain uh, trades themselves and, and it's, it's trying to work with those people and making sure that they know actually what they're getting, that they're not trying to take full control of it because we do need to keep control. Well, everything has to be coordinated. You, you can't have a situation where somebody's coming on site and you know it's their home so they're allowed to make those decisions but they need to make sure they feed them back through you the worst thing that can happen is someone comes on site and going back to the lighting says oh I don't know I don't want that light there or, or add three more in and they've forgotten actually that there's a, a smoke detector and you know a PIR for the alarm and something else going in that spot or they start moving around sockets and switches and forget that there's going to be a radiator there so you know somebody usually the interior designer sometimes the architect has got to have ultimate control of the coordination of all the drawings so that you have one master set so that everything works together as a unified whole so if the client you just have to educate them again it's all about education that if they want to change something that's absolutely fine but they just need to tell you so you can check to make sure it works and if necessary you move the radiator if they really don't want to have the light fitting where you've put it it sounds to me like there are clients out there who don't truly understand the value of what an interior designer brings to a project or what your role actually is. Yeah, we are in charge, yeah. basically. But I think too, this is, this is one of the key differences between private clients and commercial clients. The private clients, generally speaking, only do this once or at most twice in their entire lives. And by the end of their first project, they're getting pretty good at it. They understand the process. If they were then immediately to go on and do another house, they'd be absolutely fine. And you'd, you'd rub along together with great ease because they'd understand how you worked and you know, you'd, you'd be in complete um, kind of hopefully sympathy with each other. Commercial clients do it over and over and over and over again. So, you you know, they do understand the process. And I think this is part of the issue too of having the, the home invested with so much emotion and clients feeling as though they should know how a home goes together because it's their home. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I actually have clients who are serial house movers. They they get the bug and they do one project. I've, I've worked with one client five times now. Fantastic. Wow. And um, They must be the easiest projects that yeah, you do. exactly. They really are because you know them, they know you, and, and basically they leave you to it, apart from sort of the odd choice here and there. 
um, it, they're still invested in it. You know, the, the emotion is still there, but it's uh, it makes it much easier, obviously. And that trust is there if you've worked with them multiple definitely, times. Definitely, definitely. So micromanagers at one end. Yeah. Indecisive clients. Again, I think we've touched on that earlier. I think that's really just down to the fear. I think people are terrified of of making a mistake, um, and there's that awful old saying that I don't what I want. I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it. Yeah, and it's all all about not giving them too much choice. Trying because I mean we know as interior designers, there's a huge choice out there. You know, there's so many different companies offering the same the same thing. So it's making sure that you narrow that down into what you think's right for the client, and again, not give them too much choice, but be as reassuring as possible so they have faith in you that you've made the right decision. And most interior designers will admit that the hardest thing they ever do is their own home. Because as interior designers, we know so many options. You know, I, right. I, would, I would show the client three blue fabrics for their sitting room curtains, but I personally would know 300 blue mm. fabrics that I could use for my sitting room curtains. So, and I'm being shown new stuff all the time. Correct, yeah. That notion of not giving them too much choice is really important in defining the boundaries of how they work with you. I would say that that's definitely right. It, as I say, it just it just boils down to not giving them too much choice because otherwise their their brains are on overload. They don't think like we do. You know, we can see you know what's right and what's not right, etc. But they they can't, and that's why they've employed us to help narrow down these choices for them. So. It is just so important not to give them too much to, to look at or to think about. And they often find the number of decisions that we're asking them to make quickly really overwhelming. Yeah, take switches, electrical switches mm. and sockets and things like that, for instance. I mean, the choice is just, it's just crazy. You know, so you do need to narrow it down because otherwise it just becomes overwhelming, completely overwhelming. Is there anything else you can do to educate clients in how to work with you? There's a really good little document that we sometimes point our clients in the direction of which is on the it's free to download on the British Institute of Interior Design website um, which is the client guide on how to work with an interior designer and that just briefly outlines what interior designers do and, and how to get the best out of your interior designer because it is a collaborative process and I think you know if you're paying someone to design for you they're going to come up with great ideas things that you may not have ever thought about so you know use them use that skill use that experience that's right. I use that all the time, that document. I send it to clients, especially if they've not worked with an interior designer before. I think it's just incredible because it just gives every bit of information that they can come across, and especially when it comes to fees, because there's so many different ways of charging. There's no standardised way, and it just explains the different ways interior designers can charge. Last question. What's the strangest request you've ever received from a client, Fiona? <laughs> uh, on a shopping trip in London with a client, he asked me to accompany him to Sotheby's to choose some earrings for his wife. <laughs> to match the sitting room? <laughs> yeah. Yes, actually, they're a lovely emerald green, they're beautiful. <laughs> and what about you, Susie? Okay, I think the weirdest thing I was ever asked for was a client who decided she didn't like uh, plastic loose seats and she had some very spectacular dark green marble in her ensuite bathroom, so we had to make a an octagonal loose seat out of the same green marble that she had surrounding the bath and on the basin vanity top. And then because it was cold, we had to um, put an electric trace wire into it so that to warm it up so that 
a little tushy wouldn't be cold. <laughs> um, and then we also had to explain to her that you couldn't actually hinge it in any way because you can't fix intermarble because it's so frangible. So this was always just going to be fixed on the loo. She was never going to be able to take this off for cleaning, which is kind of a, a yucky thought. But anyway, it's what she wanted. So that's what we gave her. Speechless. <laughs> we are here in the northwest of England for this episode, home to a world-class community of interior designers, two of whom join me now to talk about how they're doing their bit to energise the local design scene. Welcome Natalie Holden from NH Interiors and Melinda Kiss from Keyhole Interiors. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Natalie, can you tell us about your background as an interior designer and how you and Melinda met? Yeah, sure. So I graduated from an interior design degree in 2010. So back um, when the recession it was just recovering, it was quite hard to get into an interior design practice. So I started off my career working for a luxury furniture store in-house as a designer. Worked there for a good few years and then decided to set up my own business. So um, I'm just coming up to a year now and about eight, nine months ago, um, me and Melinda decided to, we, we actually met each other on Instagram. So, you know, when you follow other people's work and you're looking at what each other are doing. So, we, so current. It, I love it. it. It's like a modern dating yeah. story, really. Yeah. <laughs> we met online. <laughs> So yeah, we, we both had projects on and we decided to meet for coffee. Um, Melinda was working in Chester at the time, so on her way to one of her meetings, we decided to meet up. And um, in that first meeting, that's where the idea came about creating this community for the designers, architects, interior brands um, in the North. And that's when you formed Concept North. Did you come up with the name straight away or did that just come out of a few discussions? It wasn't the first first conversation. Um, it just grew so organically. It, ha it all happened very, very quickly. Um, and I think it, it surprised us both. And in a way, we weren't quite expecting it to happen that quickly. But the first, the first conversation, um, we didn't, I don't think, either of us kind of planned it and but 15 minutes into meeting each other we just thought oh, why don't we create a three-day event in the northwest of the UK wow. so it was very very ambitious and then um, we both went home and we slept on it and then we met up again a week later and then we said well maybe you sh we should just start small um, but within a month we had our name our logo and uh, we just remember sitting in a cafe and shouting ideas at each other and it was really I'm surprised we weren't thrown out <laughs> Um, just being really loud and all these ideas were flying about and it just I think we were so passionate about it from the get-go um, and that's the reason why it kind of grew so quickly. So and um, what is Concept North designed to do? Tell us for people that don't know about Concept North just tell us a little bit about what it actually means. Okay so um, it means a lot of things mainly it's uh, we founded it because we both felt like they could be a lot more things happening here up north that doesn't it's not to say that they're aren't already many things happening uh, but we both felt like when it you know when it comes to trade shows or bigger events or anything you, you do have to get on a train and go to London um, and we just thought it's a it's a little bit unfair because there are so many uh, talented people here up north so we thought why don't we just do something to to create a stronger community and strengthening it yeah, it was really a chance to bring everyone together and um, to connect with each other, make new contacts, to support each other, be inspired, because 
we found working as independent interior designers, it can feel quite isolating as a business yes, owner. It can be very lonely. Yeah. You're each one's an island. Yeah, yeah. especially when you're just starting mm, up like absolutely. us. Absolutely. So um, we really wanted to be able to create that community over competition kind of feeling because we feel that everyone can support and help each other and everyone can grow together. There's enough work out there for everyone. Yeah. So it, it was it was really just to create that kind of collaboration. So how do you bring people together? What activities have you got coming up that people need to know about? We create bi-monthly events and we move them around the Northwest. We like to create these events within inspiring spaces. So rather than the usual boardroom, so it's in a mixture of restaurants, bars, um, Showrooms. Show well, the, that's the only place that we don't do um, our events is showrooms. Okay. Maybe we should. Claire, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Why haven't you targeted any showrooms? Because some of the showrooms, they're amazing spaces. The reason behind it is because we, we want to make this as comfortable as possible for our guests and our audience. So we don't want, even though... Um, you know, coming into a showroom is, is a fantastic experience, um, but we don't want anybody to feel like what we're doing is is quickly becoming um, a sales pitch, yeah. basically. So we want to stand, stay quite neutral. That's not to say that we won't don't work together with brands and showrooms. We do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, we do blog posts about people. We collaborate. Um, so we do want to work with brands and companies, but we don't want to put anybody in a position where they come into a showroom and they feel like, now I'm here, I should be interested and I should want to work with these people. So it's just, it's purely down to that. Yeah, okay. no, understood. And about how many people do you have involved in the community, would you say now? Oh, it's growing every day. So our online platform on Instagram is, we've got over a thousand followers. Wow, from a um, standing start nine months ago. Yeah. That's outstanding. We set up the Instagram in July and our first event was in September. So... Yeah, since July, we've, we've grown it. In terms of the events that we hold, we have around 40 to 50 people come. And so it's a mixture of interior designers, architects, interior brands, independent makers as well. Because so, we, we really felt like we didn't want just big brands to be involved in the events. We wanted to give opportunities to smaller companies who are you know, just starting up like us. So. Um, it, it's it's growing quite rapidly, and we we just want to spread the word as much yeah. as possible, so oh, we can get inspiring. More. We both um, we we don't like networking very much, so good <laughs> for <laughs> me. So what we kind of try to do is is we try to keep them as intimate as possible, which is why we kind of limit the tickets at fifty, so that people can actually really chat to each other, and you don't have that you know that whole thing where you have to stand up for sixty seconds and talk about your life and your business, and it just becomes so boring after you've heard yourself say it about a million times. Um, so it's quite informal. It's really friendly. It's it's about the people who come there, not not us. We're just there to facilitate these connections that are made. And so how can designers and brands support what you're doing and get involved? What's the best way for them to, to hook up with you guys? Come to our events, <laughs> come along, um, interact on social media, follow each other. We also have opportunities for sponsorship as well for brands. So the, you know, that's for bigger companies to support so we can grow it even more. Yeah. Um, it, it is basically, it's helping us out with little things like goodie bag contributions, for example, mm -hmm. because I think what a lot of people don't really think about is that we are doing this 
out of our, you know, it's just the two of us. Yes. Um, and we do get approached by a lot of brands who kind of want us to help them in some way. But for us to be able to do that, we need help as well. So it needs to be um, a mutual connection. So we've got, we're very lucky. We've got a couple of, of sponsors uh, who are helping us out with doing food and drinks at the events. Um, and we've worked with some lovely companies and brands and individuals uh, who helped us out with goodie bag contributions Fantastic. and giveaways at the event. So we always have giveaways as well. So if people want to find out more, where should they go? Well, they can follow us on Instagram at concept underscore north. Or they can um, visit the website, which is conceptnorth.co.uk. Excellent. Thank you to the fantastic Havewoods team for hosting us today. Next month, I'm excited to say that we'll be talking social media and branding in front of a live audience at the Roker London Gallery. Watch out for more news on that in the coming weeks. You can find the interior design business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and on-demand services everywhere. We're on Twitter at IntDesignPod and on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production. Mm-hmm.